My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Deepan Budlakoti and Stan Kuferschmidt of the group Justice for Deepan. Borders are not only sites at which governments claim the right to dictate who gets into a given territory and who does not. They also can be used by governments to mark people, who within the territory has or is deprived of certain rights, who gets treated as fully belonging, and who does not. Deepan Budlakoti was born in Canada, which in almost every instance confers Canadian citizenship. The Canadian government has in the past issued him a passport, which is something they only do for citizens. They did not contact him when he was 16 years old to tell him he was not a citizen, which is what they do if that is the case. It was only after he had some trouble with the law, something for which he has paid his debt to society as determined by the courts, that the Canadian government decided to reverse their previous recognition of his citizenship and to claim on technical grounds that he is not a citizen. They are proceeding to try to deport him to India, a country where he has never lived and where he has no family. Moreover, the Indian government has made it quite clear that they do not regard him as an Indian national and will not accept him. Budlakoti and Kuferschmidt talk about the details of the case and about the political support work that the Justice for Deepan Committee has been doing to oppose the threatened deportation, as well as to draw attention to the broader racist practice of double punishment, whereby immigrants in certain legal categories are punished beyond whatever is imposed by the court through the administrative addition of deportation. This falls disproportionately on people of color. I spoke with them by phone from Ottawa. My name is Deepan Bolakari, and I'm a born citizen facing deportation. My name is Stan Kuberschwein, I'm a member of the Justice for Deepan Support Committee. Deepan, why don't you lay out the basics of the situation that you're facing? I was born in Ottawa Grace Hospital. The Canadian government is trying to say that my parents had diplomatic status while I was born. The Canadian government is just saying, we believe that you're a citizen of India, which you that your parents had diplomatic status under subsection 32 of the Immigration Act, which is a rarely used law stating that if you're a person that's foreign national or individual has diplomatic privileges or a diplomat and their children are born in Canada, they are not considered a Canadian citizen. My parents, they are working for the High Commissioner as household staff until June 12, 1989. I was born in October 17, 1989, and three months prior to that, they were working for another doctor, which they had an E-1 visitor visa stamped from Boston. They're claiming that I am born to parents that have diplomatic status. There's a lot of issues with this. One, my parents did not live at the High Commission. One, well, two, the High Commission did not pay for any medical expenses. Three, they were working for a doctor, which is verified. Four, they also have a visitor E1 visitor visa in their Indian passport. In other words, though Budlakoti's parents had been present in Canada as household staff at the Indian High Commission in Ottawa, multiple accounts from different people, as well as documentary evidence, show that ended well before Budlakoti was born. They found different employment, and their passports show that after that point they were in the country on one of many classes of non-diplomatic visas, which meant that Budlakoti, like almost everyone else born within the borders, was a Canadian citizen from the start. 
Interestingly, it's only quite recently that even the Canadian government has made any indication that it thinks otherwise. I am a citizen. The government saying that I'm not a citizen, yet the government gave me every single document under the Immigration Act. If I was not a citizen, they would have notified me at age 16. Second, a Canadian passport, it goes to three different departments before it's signed off, and their sole job is to make sure that if the person actually is Canadian. Under the Passport Act, only a person that is a Canadian can get a Canadian passport. All the parameters that the government had in place allowed me to have everything. But yet again, they just say, now, oh, it's administration error. And then they take no ownership for it and then blame it on me and blame it on my parents. Keep in mind that the passport application was all done correctly. I got into trouble with law age 19. Uh, I paid my debt to society. In the process of paying my debt to society, immigration keeps me saying that I am not a citizen. A year before trial, they started. An individual from OCDC, Ottawa Health and Detention Center, I guess singled me out because they don't have a policy where they can go ahead and just check. I got into a situation over a newspaper inside, and then a guard came up to me and asked me, am I a citizen? I said, yeah. I guess because the way I look, they assume that I'm not. And they contacted CBSA, which I believe is completely ridiculous. They're going out of the way just to target me. And they contacted CBSA. CBSA came to see me. And then that's how the whole process started. I showed them a copy of my birth certificate and a copy of my passport. They went through an admissibility hearing. An admissibility hearing is not a panel of judges. It's not even a judge. It's just an immigration refugee board member, which does not even have a law degree, states that I'm not a citizen virtue of these three different aspects. One, see if you're born in Canada. Two, if you have a criminal record. Three, what's your status? They believe my status is criminal residency. And there's like, I would say, 99% chance when you go through a miscibility hearing, you're going to get a miscibility order, and you're going to have a deportation order sent to you. It's like, it's like they're setting you up right from the get-go. I tried submitting different evidence at the miscibility, like testimonies from doctors, documents, but the R&B board member said it's out of his hands and it's out of his jurisdiction to even comment, and so he dismissed all that evidence and then issued me a deportation order. The public safety minister stopped the deportation for one year because determined they withdraw the deportation order and they installed it for one year. After I got sentenced, they reissued the deportation order and claimed that I'm an Indian citizen, even though I'm born in Canada. In immigration law, you cannot appeal if you're doing more than two plus a day. So I had to seek leave. So I seek leave in front of court, and they just, they denied it. They didn't even want to hear it in front of court. And that's where it stands for that aspect at this point. But since the new evidence has arised, it's now possible to seek leave of the federal court decision and take it to the Supreme Court for the admissibility aspect. The new evidence is the fact that we have a letter from the former High Commissioner while my parents were working for him has confirmed that my parents did not work for the former High Commissioner as of June 12, 1989, and worked for a doctor. It also collaborates with the stamp that's in the passport. That is the new evidence we got from the former High Commissioner. We also have confirmation that Canada Border Servant Agency was well aware as of March 18, 2013, that India High Commission has furnished their decision to CBSA that I am not an Indian national and will not issue documents. I want people to know that CBSA did not tell me this information. I had to go and file ATIP's Privacy Information Act, which is where I found this information. And that's where the, new, there's the second part of the new evidence. If the Canadian government ends up proceeding with the deportation, that would leave you in a country where you have no family and have never lived and with no citizenship papers for any country? Is that where it would leave you? India has already stated that if they try to deport me, India will not accept me whatsoever. And if Canada forces it on them, they'll pull me on a plane and send me right back. 
So I'm not a citizen of India, I'm not a citizen of Canada at this point, and I'm stateless, even though I brought this new evidence. And this is where it stands. I want to keep in mind that being stateless violates multiple international law, and Canada has signed on the UN Convention, which dictates that it cannot impose someone coming stateless. And there's multiple violations of the Charter Rights as well, which is happening to me right now. So how did the support committee first come together? The support committee came together when he contacted a good friend of ours, our fellow organizer in uh, Montreal, who was connected with folks here who've done some migrant justice organizing in the past. And we all just came together to meet Deepak and discuss this case and how we could come together to support him in solidarity. So that was in July. Since then, we've yeah, there have been a few things we've worked on, but the main thing was to work in combination uh, with uh, Deepak's legal team and also act So tell me a bit more about the folks who came together to form the support committee. Yeah. 
email saying that they can't do squat. Instead of saying, oh, we can book a meeting to speak to the MP, they said they can't do nothing. Every single MP, every single MPP, every single minister, every single senate has been notified about this case. Yeah, so that was sort of the, the next step after this visit to uh, Chair Believer's office. It was clear the channels that are supposedly responsible in assisting uh, their constituents weren't at all, in addition to, you know, the immigration minister or the minister of public safety who has been leaving contact Yeah. 
leave it. I officially got the work permit in the mail last week, and now the next process, and I'll apply for a social insurance number, which may be problematic since I have a social insurance number for my whole life, and then going for a detention review to get bail conditions changed in order for me to work in my field. We have sent a letter already to CBSA, and we have notified all the higher-ups have been notified of what's going on, and we're waiting for a response to see exactly what happens. We are initiating a detention review. We're still waiting to see what's happening with CBSA, Canada Border Agency. But essentially, we are booking a date for a review to go to court to see if we can get these conditions modified or completely taken away. So in terms of the work that the committee has been doing, I mean, there's supporting, approaching the MPs and the other politicians, and there's building support for the statement and getting endorsements for the statement. Is, is that the key work that the committee's doing? I would say that's the key, yeah. And like I said, we're kind of looking at being strategic, too, in our trajectory of action. So at this point, we've been contacting the league, looking for support, and certainly we'll be taking next steps if the government's still unwilling to rectify the wrongs that they've carried out that have, in essence, made defense stateless. Which right? violates the mm-hmm. convention that uh, Canada has signed and violates international law. So we're looking at carrying out a series of other actions over the next few months, because specifically targeting the ministers of immigration and uh, public safety. So phone and campaign rallies, and I won't go into more detail. We want to have the ultimate surprise on them, but like I said, we're looking at escalating and continuing to support DFAT and push for this notion of double punishment to be challenged on a wider level and to become more conscious in people's minds in terms of you know, what it actually entails and just how wide it is in fact practiced. For those who are looking on ways to support the and justice for DFAT, there's multiple things they can do. One of the main things, especially as an organization, to sign the sign-on statement, both as individuals, but also as an organization, send a strong message, and to send it out amongst people's networks to other organizations, either union locals, uh, you know, we're really looking at all sectors, grassroots organizations, community groups, church groups, whatever bodies that can mobilize, make a clear statement that this is totally unjust and unacceptable, and the vast majority of people are supporting D in his quest of citizenship act. Put this work that's supporting Deepan's case in the context of the longer trajectory of migrant justice organizing in Ottawa. What sort of things have been going on over the last number of years in Ottawa? That's a tough one for me because I'm actually fairly new to uh, Ottawa. But no one is legal in Ottawa has just recently begun to kickstart organizing again. Maybe actually you can talk about that a little bit about the upcoming, uh, they're organizing an upcoming conference sort of on, on migrant justice. Yeah, there's a No One Legal website in Ottawa. No One's Legal. They're setting up a relaunch of No One Legal in Ottawa officially on November 1st and November 2nd. They're having workshops and panels and inviting anyone and everyone that's interested in partaking in No One's Legal. We're partnering up with No One's Legal throughout Canada. And at this point, it's a work in progress, but it's, it's up and running. And it's going to continue to run. And hopefully, we'll be able to help multiple individuals down the road. I know it's such a critical thing, I think, particularly that being the uh, you know, nation's capital and Ottawa here, uh, and the home to all the politicians that are enacting this legislation that is an attack on racialized communities, those without status. So yeah, I think the mobilization, in, in my opinion, from what I can see, is only gaining uh, more momentum, and I think we'll see some real movement building around this, particularly with labor also getting more vocally involved in it as well, as well as grassroots levels. So one of the things that strikes me about this case and about other similar cases is that in order to do the practical work of hopefully winning a victory, you really have to engage with the technicalities of the system. 
But when you look at the case, and when you're thinking about justice instead of law, the technicalities are just kind of almost irrelevant. doesn't matter what the details are. Making someone stateless, deporting them to a place they've never lived, whatever the details are, that's unjust. So talk about that tension between recognizing how ridiculous it all is, but still having to sort of play along with the technical details of the system. Can you expand on that? Um, yeah, I mean, we can look at this double standard of citizenship through our Canadian history, and we can look at uh, what was happening with the Chinese migrants that were uh, in Canada. The government imposed what they called a head tax on those migrants, essentially just exploiting them for their labor. They were not citizens. They had to pay extra taxes. There's multiple examples I can think of. Also, just this construction of the uh, Canadian state on stolen First Nations land is a uh, perfect example to these who does and does not have a right to uh, live in these lands when in fact that's the very structure that has stolen this land and now claims ownership of it and will now dictate who has a right to be here and who doesn't. Completely preposterous if you just look at it from that angle as well. So what are just a few of the key negative policy changes over the last number of years? Since the government has included the new bill C-31, immigration laws actually got much more tougher on individuals. Now, with how the conservative government has changed it and modified the immigration laws, it's a clear cut showing that their main objective is to deport everybody as much as possible and as fast as possible. And the conditions that people live in, in inside, the immigration concept, how you're treated inside, how you're treated as a second class citizen, and so forth and so forth, should be a concern to everyone. First one that comes to mind is the change that the citizenship of immigration now has the right to take away anyone's citizenship, declare them a non citizen. So that's certainly one big thing. Also, this notion of safe countries, so for those who are applying as refugees, they are from a particular country that is being deemed a safe country. They have no, no right to apply as a refugee, which leaves them in a situation where they are stateless or are non-citizen, no status, and are, are sent back, deported. And then either it's countries where people are facing you know, severe precarity and severe persecution. So uh, looking at Mexico, we can see multiple European countries, which were put on a list specifically, again, like to target and prevent Budlakoti also pointed towards another list of countries that the government maintains, this time a list of countries to which they supposedly will not deport people because of danger. This gives the government the ability to claim that it is looking out for the well-being of those it deports, but in his time in immigration detention, Budlakoti saw plenty of cases where people to be deported to countries on this list either were deported anyway, or were simply held in detention for extended periods. I Right now, the Kenyan government, how immigration is set up, you can't get deported to Syria, they'll try to deport you to uh, Turkey. Uh, you can't get deported to Somalia, they'll still deport you to Somalia, but a different, a different part of Somalia. You can't get uh, deported to Haiti, which is on the list at one point. They have a change in it, and, you, and they'll deport you to Haiti. So, there's no actual safe list. They kind of want the public to know, oh, there's a safe list. Me, personally, being inside for an additional six months under immigration detention at Toronto West Detention Center, I clearly see that people are getting deported to countries that are on the list. By force or without force, they're getting deported. And if they, they, they force it, they get escorted by two or three CBSA officers. And then there's countries that are not accepting individuals like Jamaica. They're being held for months, if not years, stuck inside. 
So the, the policy around what immigration is trying to show people is not actually the truth. They're just covering things up that a lot of people don't even know about. I'll give you an example of one thing. Immigration has stated that you can appeal certain parts of your case. In actual fact, that appeal has been taken away. So now the only way you can actually appeal if you want to classify it as an appeal is that seek leave. And seeking leave is not even an appeal. It's just asking the federal court to hear it. And they don't even need to give you a reason, yes or no. They have to say, if it's denied, denied. If it's accepted, uh, accepted, then it goes on. Also, well, I think one of the legislative changes was, was that you no longer have a right to appeal the decision of an IRB judge, so the Immigration Refugee Board judge. So that decision is standing, whatever they are. You no longer have the right to appeal if they decide negatively in your case. Which is, I find ridiculous, since they're not really a judge. They don't have training for a judge. They only have certain aspects of the law, and they're just a board member. They're classified as a board member. They don't, they're not classified as a judge. And I, I think people that are making uh, you know, life and death decisions in terms of who will stay and who will be deported back to the country they fled from, who have no real background whatsoever even, or understanding when it comes to migration or immigration, when Karchen was prime minister. So, so they appoint who, who is an IRB judge. I believe he appointed his tailor or something absolutely preposterous like that. So it's just, uh, you know, people who have been hired for this board are just friends of those in power. And I'm put in this role that plays a huge, huge direct result on whether someone will live or die and what kind of life they will have, just on account of nepotism and who they know. That added injustice of no longer being able to even appeal those decisions is quite, uh, quite funny. I think that's all the questions that I have. Is there anything else that's important about the case or about the organizing that we haven't touched on yet? Can I point out that the, um, I'm always looking for support in terms of members. There's orientation coming up. Anyone that's interested in coming to an orientation, there's a Facebook event and a page. There's the justiceforbpn.org website. Always looking for um, additional assistance in terms of funding or in terms of sign-on statements, spreading the word on the petition, copies of petitions by mail. We are always looking for uh, any kind of financial support. The uh, legal costs for the case alone have been, uh, obviously, as you can imagine, skyrocketed and are, uh, you know, building each week. So we're looking for support as well in that, in that way. Anyone that ever has any questions, they can always contact us. And either I, myself, or a member of the committee would call them back to elaborate a little bit more about the case if there's any questions. And please check out our website. It's www.justiceforbpen.org. And please watch our film as well. It's a three-minute clip and circulate it to as many people as, as possible. Three-minute clips are just deep and explaining his situation and the reality of, of what it means to uh, live under the conditions that the government has imposed on him. You have been listening to my interview with Deepan Budlakoti and Stan Kuferschmidt of the group Justice for Deepan. To learn more about the case and about their work, you can visit their website at justiceforddeepan.org. That's all one word, justiceforddpan.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Prince, Prince, Phil.